Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 20, starting with verse 1. The, um, the last time we saw the riot in Ephesus, and basically it was precipitated by pagans being converted to Christ and changing their lives for the good, which is what's supposed to happen. And because their lives were changed, they didn't worship the little idols anymore that the, uh, that the um, tradesmen were selling. So it caused a problem because business was down in idol sales. So that's what precipitated the riot. And then we kind of went into, as Christians, we should change. As we grow in Christ, we should become more Christ-like and less worldly, less like ourselves. Uh, today we're going to see the bulk, pretty much, of Paul's third missionary journey before he ends up in Jerusalem. Now, there's a lot of stuff in here. There's some geography, there's some history. Uh, Acts is, is a historical book. When we're done with the book of Acts, we only have a few chapters left, I will probably go into some of Paul's epistles, which we can get more of an application out of. There'll be less facts and more application to take to our daily lives. Starting with verse 1. It says, After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to him, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. Now when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed three months. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia, also Aristarchus and Segundus of the Thessalonians and Gaius of Derbe and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. These men going ahead waited for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. So what you see here is, um, after the Ephesian uproar had ceased, what does Paul do? It says he embraced the disciples. I could just imagine the dialogue. Oh, I didn't think I'd ever see you again. Wow, that was a close one. Oh boy, God really delivered you. Oh, it's so good to see you, and a big hug. And again, that's just conjecture, but I assume some of that went on. We often don't realize how much we mean to each other, especially in the body of Christ, until a crisis. Isn't that true? The Western church can be so splintered and clicky and factioned and divisive and divided, okay? A lot of times because the Western church isn't in the spiritual battle. If you follow overseas news, you find that in some areas of China, people will walk a whole half a day to get to service. And, and because it's, you know, they have to go through the woods or what have you, and then when service is over, they stay as long as they can in fellowship, and then they take the whole half the, the day to continue home. A lot of these places, there's a lot of tragedy, there's a lot of persecution, and those Christians are really close together. Kind of reminds me of the children of Israel in the book of Judges, after Moses' leadership, after Joshua's leadership. The children of Israel, they took a break, they weren't in the battle, and they started just sinning and, you know, doing all kinds of bad stuff, and they were splintered. Even when their brothers needed help, some of them said, "Ah, eh, I'm not going to rise to the call of battle. You saw that splinteredness of the church. You know, in war, in warfare, and we can look at this in a physical application, and we can look at it in a spiritual application. We talked about the Spartans, right? These men were shoulder to shoulder with their shields and their spears, and they had to look out for each other. So they were very tight. There was a camaraderie amongst those people. And in the spiritual battle, if Christians wear in the spiritual battle, we will become tighter and more cohesive. But when there's nothing to fight and we're not in the spiritual battle, we become more splintered. You see, that's how it works. You see that in the scripture. And in the end, I'm going to do a demonstration. I'm going to call the teens back in, and I'll give you a, a visual at the end. Now, 
a few historical notes, uh, geog- geographical notes. What you have is Paul went from Ephesus, according to the scripture, he went from Ephesus to Macedonia, okay, where he wrote Second Corinthians. And from Macedonia, he went down to the heart of Greece and ended up in Corinth, where he wrote the book of, of Romans. Then he was going to sail to Syria from Corinth, but a plot was discovered on Paul's life, and probably they were going to, I don't know, beat him up and throw him overboard, so he drowned. So instead of sailing, he went back through Macedonia on foot. He came to Philippi, and from Philippi, he actually sailed to Troas. In verse 4, who ends up in Troas with Paul, the Apostle Paul? We have a few names here, and they come from Berea, Thessalonica, Derby, and Asia. And if we know something about those locations, that's where Paul went through in the Macedonian area to plant those churches. So these men were a fruit of Paul's labor. That's pretty nice to see the fruit of your labor. They're mature now. They're going to meet him at Troas. There's some speculation. Did they come there for comfort and support for the Apostle Paul? Was it for accountability reasons because he carried the Jerusalem offering? Remember, the Jerusalem church was struggling. And he took an offering from some of the Gentile churches. It shows how they work together. And he took that offering personally and brought it to the Jerusalem church. So it could have been accountability reason, which is good. But either way, one or both, um, you know, it, these guys were with him. And in verses 4 and 6, we see the narrator. Remember who's writing the book of Acts? Dr. Luke, who also wrote Luke. Now, he starts to use words such as us and we indicating that now Dr. Luke, again, was part of the traveling contingent. Paul would, the Apostle Paul would use these men, send them to Macedonia, send them to different areas to minister, and then oftentimes they would regroup and go through different locations together. It is a little hard to follow the book of Acts. you really got to get in there and study it to see all the activity that's going on. And in verse 6, it says, We sailed after the days of unleavened bread. Now, understand that's part of the Passover celebration. Passover between Passover and Pentecost was 50 days. And we're going to see Pentecost named again. And basically what happens, it's Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread are part of the same festival. The Passover happens first. Uh, the Passover occurs on the, the Nisan 14th on the Jewish calendar and corresponds to our March and April. And that's just basically what you're seeing here is a calendar marker. You see, the beauty of the Bible okay, is its accuracy. Those who may be of you that are not familiar with the Bible, maybe you've heard people say, oh, it's a, it was made up. A bunch of people wrote it. They kind of made things up so that people would be good. But when you really start to look at it, the Bible, God's word says, test me. God's word throws out so many facts that if the more facts you throw out, if there's a lie in there, they're going to start to um, uh, coincide and, and cause a contradiction. But you see geography. You see uh, the, Nis- the Nisan 14th, the Days of Unleavened Bread. You see time periods. You see names of Roman officials in the Bible. And if this book was made up, it would be very easy for it to fall apart. As a matter of fact, I saw, I was at a Gideon's there on Friday night, and they had a testimony of a woman. She and her whole family were atheists. And somehow she got a hold of a Bible, started reading it as a teen. She became saved because of reading the Word of God. And slowly, one by one, members of her atheist family, as they started to read the Bible, became converted to Christ. Pretty amazing story. Josh McDowell, I believe he was a, um, a well-known atheist. Same thing. Very intelligent man. Set out to disprove the Bible. He ends up becoming one of the greatest pillars of Christianity that we know today because he said, wow, this, is not, this isn't a fairy tale. This is true. 
So this is so cool um, how the is the accuracy of the scripture. Verse 7. It says, Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together, and in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep, and as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down, fell on him, and embracing him said, Do not trouble yourself, for his life is in him. Now when he had come up, he had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till daybreak, until he departed. And they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. This is one of the clearest, clearest pictures that we know of a church gathering on Sunday. Now, there's a little confusion. There's a doctrine out there that says the Christians came in and they replaced the Jewish Sabbath with a Sunday Sabbath. That's not, that's not scriptural. We're not replacing the Sabbath. You have to understand the mindset. We, okay, are impressed with the resurrection of Christ. Even 2,000 years later, there's enough evidence to see that Jesus actually rose from the dead and appeared to many, okay? And we, we, we've gone into that apologetics uh, issue. But now go back 2,000 years. Go back to the disciples. Go back to the people that actually saw Jesus, saw him teach, saw the miracles, and some of those same people saw him rise from the dead. So if you were back then, he rose from the dead on Sunday morning. It was the first day of the work week. And, and what they did was they said, wow, this is a special day. And they commemorated that day as the Lord's Day. They didn't replace the Sabbath. It just was a day they commemorated because Jesus rose from the dead. A few things happened. One, they came together. You see fellowship. Two, they broke bread. You see communion. And three, Paul continued his message. It was a sermon and no doubt a long one. It started in the evening and went through to midnight. The question is, why at evening? Well, we said Sunday was the first day of the week. It was a work week. See, what we have to realize is we're so used to our lives that we have to actually go back and interject ourselves into the culture at the time. As a matter of fact, I did a study on the weekend, okay? What is the weekend? It's an American, European kind of thing, but the whole world doesn't follow Monday through Friday work week and Saturday and Sunday off, okay? We live in a post-resurrection society. Um, in those days, the Roman Empire wasn't about to give the Christians a day off and say you don't have to work on Sunday, so they worked during the day and they met in the evening. In verse 8, they met in the upper room. Some people get hung up about the building. They expect to see, when they come to a church, they expect to see the big cross and the steeple and the beautiful ornate uh, carvings. But remember, in the Greek, the word ekklesia just means those people that are called out, okay, separated unto God, called out of the world. So the church is actually the people, not the building. As a matter of fact, it wasn't until really hundreds of years later before they actually had church buildings when Constantine made church legal now in the Roman Empire instead of a scourged uh, sect you started to see churches being built but for the most part it says they met house to house they met in public places when they were, they were persecuted the Christians met in caves you see so I actually I, I don't know about you but see the book of Acts just blows me away because you see so much history and you see so much culture in here and you're really learning about why you believe what you believe. And the other thing is, um, 
they met in the upper room. What was more important than the building what was, going, was, then, was what was going on in the building. Okay? And it's the same thing with us, folks. It's not about window dressing. It's not about how beautiful the church is. There's some churches that are very beautiful, and what are they talking about? Everything but God's word. It's dead. And then there's some buildings that people meet in their homes, and the word of God is really being spoken about. That's a church. So it's not about window dressing. The same thing with us as Christians. It's not about coming in and putting on a show for other Christians. It's about where are we on the inside? What's going on on the inside? That's more important. Verse 9. I want to read this again because if you really read it, there's a little humor in here. In a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep, and as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. This is encouraging for me. <laughs> I didn't even say anything yet. <laughs> At least it shows you're all awake. Because up here, I can see everybody. And I can see when some of you are nodding off and like this, right? <laughs> and I don't judge you. Hold on. <clears throat> unspiritual. <clears throat> unspiritual. I have something in my throat. If it happened to the Apostle Paul, it's okay, you know. <laughs> but I have a plan. See, when we get a building, I'm going to put the sanctuary on the third floor. <laughs> and all those people I know that are nodders, I'm putting you by the window ledge. <laughs> That'll fix you. So, it's, you know, you see so much of human nature in the Scripture. And that's the beauty of it. I was looking through a list of the people that God used, men and women. I don't remember any of them being perfect. It just shows the frailty of human nature. And that's the beauty of you and me, because God can use any of us. doesn't matter what our backgrounds were. As long as we've come to the Lord, he can use us. All we have to say is, I'm willing. But this, this Eutychus was dead, because the word dead in the Greek is necros. And in the English, we get the words necrotic, like dead tissue, or necromancy, um, you know, looking at... Um, fortune telling and stuff, you know, a fascination with the dead seances. So this word dead is dead. He was dead. In the immortal words of Dr. McCoy from Star Trek, he's dead, Jim. <laughs> Got some Trekkies out there. Uh, so it truly was a miracle. And in verse 10, but Paul knew that Eutychus would be alive. Just like Jesus. Remember the uh, synagogue ruler's daughter? She was dead. All the wailing women came out. People were grieving over this young girl. And Jesus said, She's not dead. She's just sleeping. And the Bible says that they laughed at him so hard that it was scornful. They laughed Jesus to, to scorn. And Jesus said, Talitha kumi, I say to you, little girl, arise. He had the power to raise her from the dead. Similar resurrections. Okay, what you see here is Paul actually spread himself out on the guy, and then he brought him up. And again, it was a miracle. But 1 Kings 17.21, Elijah also did it with a young boy. He spread himself out on the boy, and, and the, the life came back into him. Uh, 2 Kings 4.34, Elisha did the same thing with a boy. boy was dead. He, he fell on him, and the boy came back to life. The irony here is similar to Peter. Paul could raise the dead and heal the sick, but you know what Paul couldn't do? Paul couldn't prevent his own death. You see, and Eutychus, okay, Eutychus died again, because if Eutychus was still alive, he'd be on a talk show somewhere. So he would be. He'd talk about his 2,000 years of, you know, of, of his life and how interesting. You talk about a fascinating uh, guest, Eutychus would be fascinating. Lazarus, you know, Lazarus, come forth. Jesus called him out of the tomb. 
and you know, take those grave cloths off of him. Lazarus rose from the dead, but only to die again. Same thing. Now, a little bit closer and near and dear to my heart, when my stepfather died, he was dead for 10 minutes. They brought him back. He died again. They brought him back with, with modern uh, medicine, of course. But I was asking you as a body to pray for him because he had an obstruction in his lungs. And we were, we, we were concerned that even if he came back, he'd be brain damaged. Okay, and, and that was a concern. But you know what? The Lord did a miracle. He came back and there was no brain damage. Now, my mother is married to him and she might say different, but for the most part, <laughs> clinically, there's no brain damage. But Papa Ray, as we affectionately call him, will die again. Could be in five years, 10 years, 20 years. Only God knows. The point is, you, I, the apostles, we can't cheat death. Hebrews 9.27 says it is appointed for man to die once and then the judgment, and that's important. And we all are going to die, but we all are going to live forever, and the question is where? The atheist hopes that when he dies, the brainwave shuts off and he ceases to exist. What if he's wrong? What if he's still conscious on the other side? That's going to be a problem for him if he's rejected God's way of salvation. And if you don't know the Lord, I want you to think about that. You're not guaranteed another day. I'm not. Another week. How, how long do you know that you're going to be here? That's one thing we can't predict, when we're going to live and when we're going to die. So I would say that if you don't know Jesus Christ as your, lave, uh, as your Lord and Savior, you really need to think about your life. You really need to think about the frailty of your life. To switch gears and tell you, as a police officer in my 18th year, I've seen a lot of people die. And they're not all, in, they're not all 99 years old. A lot of them were young broadsided in a car accident, freak accident, struck by lightning, fell off a ladder, you name it, they died. And in the positions they were in, what they had in their pockets, what they were doing, they probably thought they had another day of life. They didn't see it coming. That's the thing about death. You never see it coming. If you don't know the Lord, you really need to think about him because you don't know how long you have. And I noticed something else here, that Paul went back to preaching after resurrecting this guy. It's almost in a comical fashion. He, uh, he's dead. <laughs> hold on. Hold, hold the sermon. Hold that thought. He falls on the guy. He brings him back. They break bread, and Paul continues talking. <laughs> he really must have had a lot to say that day. But it shows you that God's word is elevated even higher than signs and wonders. You see, some churches have, um, have gone off the course of God's word, and it's all about emotionalism. It's all about sensationalism. It's all about feelings. How do you feel today? How do you feel? I had a migraine this morning. I didn't feel very good. But God has called me to preach the word of God, and that's what I do. We're going to feel good, and we're going to feel bad. It's not about our feelings, because they change, right? But Jesus even said, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign in his day. They knew the word of God. They knew that the Old Testament spoke about the time period that the Messiah would come. They knew that everything in the Old Testament spoke about him. And they were looking for a sign. Jesus, wow us. Do a parlor trick. And he said, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Now, Jesus wasn't being mean. There's a practical application to that. And understand this, that the practical side of it is, the Bible tells us in the book, of, see, God loves us. He doesn't tell us not to do something because he's mean. He, he does it because he loves us. You know, there's going to come a point in time, it could be in the next five years, ten years, who knows, in the book of Revelation where the Antichrist will come, right? He'll be this great uh, on-earth Messiah that everybody will worship. And it says he'll be doing a lot of lying signs and wonders. If the generation today that's looking for a sign runs into the Antichrist, they're going to mistakenly believe that he's the Messiah. 
And it's going to bring them into damnation. So Jesus said, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Be careful of deception. Verse 13. Then we went ahead to the ship and sailed to Assos, there intending to take Paul on board. For so he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. We sailed from there, and the next day came opposite Chios. The following day we arrived at Samos and stayed at Tregillium. The next day we came to Miletus, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem if possible on the day of Pentecost. Remember, I brought that up. So Paul, you know, he wanted to be there for the Passover. It doesn't kind of work out that way. Uh, now he's going in that 50-day span, and he wants to be in Jerusalem for Pentecost. So here you see some of these names of places. And a lot of these places today, if you were to go in Turkey, at the western end, they're still ruins. They, they do exist, okay, because the Bible is a history book. So you see what happens here is uh, you have Mytilene, okay, uh, Chios, Samos, Tragilium, Miletus. And he sends for the elders at Ephesus, and he ends up uh, meeting with them. And we'll, we're going to see what happens there. So here's pretty much third, uh, Paul's third missionary journey. comes through Turkey, across to Greece, southern Greece, doubles back, goes back to Turkey. He ends up uh, trip, um, making some island trips here. And then he ends up over here, Jerusalem. And then we see his fourth missionary journey. So I'm sure my map people will be happy that they don't have to put this together for a while. Uh, so we're going to be done with the map for a little while. So keep that in mind. 17. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, and how I kept back nothing that was helpful but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly, publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentant towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're new to understanding the Bible, Jesus was Jewish, Paul was Jewish, the early church was Jewish, okay? He's speaking about that group that refused to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. But the, it was, um, the Jewish people really started uh, under Christianity. That's where the, it started in, in the Jewish people. So understand that, that what he's saying there. But this can be categorized here as Paul's example during his last personal discourse to the Ephesian elders. In verse 18 and 19, Paul says to them, You know what manner I lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility. Now, he's basically saying that you, you people, saw me with your own eyes, the manner that I lived among you. And he's basically saying, test me. Was my example a good example or a bad example? indicating it was a good example. Now, whenever you say that to somebody and you say, hey, you know my example, if you didn't have a good example, you open it up to, you're a hypocrite. You're the worst Christian I've ever seen, right? So Paul is, is, is saying to them, test me. This is what I did. I served among you. I didn't try to get anything from you. All I did was try to love you. And this is a good example for us because I don't care how many words you use to try to lead somebody to Jesus or to try to sell somebody you care about them. Your actions are going to speak a lot louder than your words do. Because if you say something with your mouth, but your actions show something else, no one's going to hear or care what you have to say with your words. 
So in this example, Paul says, listen, rewind the tape, look in the manner that I lived among you, and look at my example. And that's the way we have to look at life. Me as a pastor, if I'm telling husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church, love those ladies. And I'm telling you, wives, respect your husbands and listen to what they say, okay? For me to tell you men to love your wives, I better be loving my, my wife, don't I? If you treat, see me treating her bad, then what kind of example am I setting, right? If I say to you fathers and mothers, be good to your kids, put quality time into them, don't exasperate them, the time that you're with them, make it important, and I'm not doing that with my son, I'm being a hypocrite. And it doesn't mean that I'm going to live a perfect life, because I don't, I can tell you that right now, but, you know, what is my example? What is our example? Do we have a good character and testimony and do we have that good uh, character among the church? That's one of the biblical requirements of any leader, to have a good character, okay, to have a good testimony. And Paul said he served with many tears and trials and humility. If you want to be in the ministry for glory, think again. We talked about last Sunday, um, you know, newsflash to American Christians. God's plan for your life and my life may not be to glorify me and you. It may be to glorify him, and I say that facetiously. God's plan is to glorify himself because he deserves all the glory and praise. We're just used as tools, and we should be honored to be used as those tools for his glory. Tears, he said, with many tears. I believe Paul had passion and compassion. Paul was passionate. When you read his letters, when we get into some of the doctrinal letters, okay, you can see that Paul speaks with passion. And we're going to go into the Greek a little bit to really pull out those meanings. And Paul also had compassion. He had the whole picture. The word actually for encouraging, when it says Paul encourages them, the encouraging word in the Greek is parakalesos. Now, if you've been with us for any length of time, that's also the word that's used for the Holy Spirit. Paul gave comfort to those that were around him, but he also convicted. The Holy Spirit has a dual role. The Holy Spirit loves us. The Holy Spirit comforts us. But the Holy Spirit tells us at times when we're doing something wrong. And we need both. We don't just need to be comforted all the time. That's what society teaches you. Pamper yourself. It's all about you. No, it's not. Okay? We need comfort from the Lord, but we also need to be convicted when we're doing something wrong. And it says, how I kept back nothing that was helpful. And this is what a good under-shepherd does. What is an under-shepherd? Well, that's anyone who's under the chief shepherd, the archipoimenos, which Jesus is, the arch-shepherd. Any teacher, pastor, leader will always submit himself under Jesus Christ. Jesus is the chief shepherd. So all of us as under-shepherds, we can't be holding back anything that's convicting or hard things to say uh, because we want maybe more people to come in. We want this to be looked at as a friendly church. So I'm going to preach a happy message and a message that feeds your ego all the time so that you bring your friends and the church bursts at the seams. That's not what it's about. Paul said, I kept nothing back that was helpful. Some things, sometimes the hard sayings are more helpful than the comfort. And those people are spiritually damaging their flock. There's too much of that going on. Too much fuzzy, friendly, happy messages from the pulpits. Because you know what? The pastors want an easy life. I'll tell you, if, if, if I was to teach Sunday after Sunday a message that always uplifted you and never said anything about materialism or, or ego or self-centeredness, I would be hurting you. As a matter of fact, I may talk about greed. I may talk about lust. I may talk about materialism. I may be talking about a lot of things. And you know what? Inevitably, somebody comes up to me after service uh, or sometime during the week and says, are you talking about my situation don't be talking about my situation. 
It's like, do I have time to make a message about Bob this Sunday and Betty next Sunday and Bill the next Sunday? No, I don't. I preach the Word of God. Wherever the Holy Spirit fires, that's on you. Because I've got to tell you, I get convicted a lot of times from my own messages. You know, I'm writing something down, I'm like, oh, I don't do that. <laughs> oh, that hurt. Right in the kisser it got me. So, <laughs> you know, now, this may come off wrong, but I don't know how else to say it. I don't care what people think about me. I've been called to preach the Word of God, and wherever it hits, it hits. I care, my measuring line, my standard is God's Word. It's not people's opinions of me. And we have to get away from what we think people are thinking about us and what do we think God thinks of us. I keep referencing that book by Welch, When, God, when Man is Big and God is Small. And it's just about interpersonal relationships and how we're more concerned about what others think of us than what God really thinks of us. That's a problem in our society. Verse 21. It says that Paul testified to the Jews and also to the Greeks. Now, in those days, culturally, that meant I testified to everyone because you were either Jewish or you were Hellenized by the Greek culture. So pretty much he's saying, I, I preach the same thing to everybody, you know, equally to all. And you see, the same message is for all. See, I don't believe in division and exclusion and, and you, know, uh, you know, I guess, look, everybody has a ministry and I try not to criticize other ministries, but if you're preaching the word of God, you'll reach everybody. See, because the gospel is transcendent. When I meet a brother from Asia or Africa or Canada or Europe, you know, they may even have, I don't understand their accent, they don't understand mine, but you know what, it's almost like I've known them all my life because they're reading from the same playbook. You see, if we're really both grounded in the word, God's word is transcendent. It doesn't matter what your culture is, what language you speak, what you look like. Jesus Christ came for all of us. There's no exclusivity in, in the message of the gospel. And he said, I preached repentance and faith. Again, for those who, maybe you're not familiar with the message of salvation, what's repentance and faith? John the Baptist came. Jesus said, among women, uh, those born of women, John the Baptist was the greatest preacher, the greatest prophet of all. That's a pretty high honor. Think of Moses, you think of Elijah, you think of... And John the Baptist was the greatest prophet. John's whole ministry was to preach repentance. He baptized people for repentance. What he basically told them is, clean all the junk out of your heart because the Messiah is coming. Get it all out. Get all, you know, repent. Say to the Lord, you know, I lived a self-centered life. Get it all out. And turn. Turn towards God. So repentance has to come first. It's that house cleaning. Clean out all the junk out of your heart. And then the second thing that happens is faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And we know Jesus was the word of God. So then you start hearing the, God's message. And now it changes you. You know. So it's repentance and faith. And the message is what? That we've all rebelled against God. And you may say, well, I'm not rebellious. Listen, you sit alone with your thoughts long enough, you'll think about something bad, about somebody or something you want to do that you know that's not right. Our own thoughts betray us, okay, the scripture tells us. So we've all rebelled against God. And God is perfect. God can't just accept us in our, our sinful state. So what he devised the plan was for his son to come to the earth, to, die of, uh, to be born of a, of a virgin, to lead a sinless life, to die a substitutionary death, and spill his blood for the remission of our sins. Now some may say, boy, that sounds so archaic, and it sounds so... It's not a nice message. You know what? Sin isn't nice. Sin is offensive to God. And God's son had to go to extreme means to receive us back into the sheepfold. And when we believe on the sacrifice, that's all we have to do. That's all we have to do. 
We take his place. We have his reputation. He took ours on the cross and buried it uh, when he died on the cross. So once we believe in Jesus Christ, we've repented. That's it. That's all we have to do. Is, is that it? I have to, don't I have to give money to the church? No. Don't I have to do this or do that or work my... No. Jesus already did it for you. Just believe in the, in the message. Believe in the sacrifice that he made. Verse 22. And see now, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy. And the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. So we, and this is, this is where we're going to end it on this verse for this Sunday. We saw Paul's example, and here we have Paul's future, God's commission and plan for him. Paul says, I go bound in the spirit. Now understand this, God doesn't force us to do anything. We only go bound in the spirit. We can say that. It's not like God's got a lasso and he's going to rope you in and tie you down and you can't move and he's going to make you do something you don't want to do. We're only bound in the spirit. We only, when, when we want to be, when we submit ourselves to him. See, we could submit ourselves to us and our own self-directed ways and do whatever we want. I'm free to do whatever what I want. Relationships, drugs, um, you know, greed. I could do whatever I want. Well, you know what? You're bound to somebody, and it's usually yourself and your sin. Or you could go bound to God. You're going to serve somebody, okay? And again, Paul did it willingly. And furthermore, God revealed uh, to Paul some of his plan, and it wasn't pleasant. It's one thing to say, yes, Lord, I will serve you. I think some people say that too flippantly. But, and I will glorify your name. But what if your name is tarnished in the process? Is it still okay? Will we be obedient to God when his plan doesn't go the way that we kind of expected it to go. And he had tears, trials, abasement, one word, chains, and tribulation. Where does the prosperity gospel fit in here? Is it in here? The one that preaches God wants you to be healthy all the time and always wealthy and always happy. And if you have enough faith, you could achieve these things. And if you don't have these things, then, you know, it's no good for you. Well, guess what? The prosperity gospel is not found in the scripture. As a matter of fact, prosperity teachers have to omit whole sections of the Bible because it doesn't fit with their theology. Uh, Mark, you could bring in the teens at this point. I'm going to do an illustration at the end as we wrap it up. Uh, I just want the teens are usually pretty good for visual things. Uh, They're in in the back in the classroom. Uh, Verse 24, it says, but Paul says, none of these things move me. None of the consequences move Paul. He put himself entirely into the hands of the Lord. And we will only have true peace in the midst of life's storms when we can truly say to God, I trust you. Remember Peter, when Peter was in the boat and Jesus was walking on the water and Peter said to Jesus, if that's you, Lord, command me to come to you. And uh, Jesus said to Peter, come. And Peter walked out of the boat and his feet were on the water. He took a step and he was walking towards Jesus. When he focused on Jesus, everything was good. As soon as Peter looked down and realized he was some distance from the, the boat and that was water and he shouldn't be able to walk on it, he started to sink. And he said, help me, master, save me. So we can only have true peace in our lives when we trust the Lord in the midst of our, our trials and circumstances. So my question to you is, what is it this morning in your life that's moving you? And don't tell me it's the coffee and the bran muffin. <laughs> can we say, 
I'm content with whatever your will is for me in my life. Can we say that? And can we now, now can we say it and really believe it in our heart? See, that's the key. And he says, I finished the race with joy. A few scriptures if you're taking notes. 1 Corinthians 9.24, Philippians 2.16, and 2 Timothy 4.7. Race, finish, joy. Paul used a lot of those examples as life is like a race. Okay, And in our country, we think of the rat race. <laughs> Tomorrow you've got to go to work. The boss is going to demand production. It's a Monday morning. He expects this to get done, right? But Paul was saying life is like a race. And life is like a race. I think we see it too. And we all run that race. But my question is, what is our goal? If, if you don't know the Lord, what is your goal? To have a good relationship? Then to have kids? Then to watch the kids grow up? Then to be a grandparent? Then to retire? And then what? <laughs> You see, eventually you're going to die. And then what happens? What did you run your race for? What Paul is saying, when we run our race, okay, and when we, we, we live our lives, we should be doing it as unto the Lord, because then when we, we run, at the end of the race, we receive the prize from the Lord. So our life has meaning. Does our life have meaning? And the gospel of grace. The gospel is grace. The gospel says that we've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and God sent his son through the blood of Jesus to save us from our sins. And verse 25, the last verse, he says, you will see my face no more. When I have to do a funeral, you know, I don't like doing funerals because there's just a lot of sadness. Um, it's one of the things as a pastor I don't like to do. But you have to do them, right? It's, death is a part of life, so to speak. But why is death so painful? And I often say this, one word. Think of one word why funerals and death is so painful. The word is Separation. Because now you're separated from that person. And all the thoughts are going through your mind, right? Will I ever see them again? You know, you start questioning things. So separation is, is the worst part. And there's a perspective check here. Paul and these people, um, his friends, would only be separated for a time. Because we know now that, you know, wherever they are, and they're definitely with the Lord, if, if they knew the Lord, they're there. They've been having a party for the last 2,000 years. So death is temporary to the believer. Now, I want to do a demonstration because what I see here is what I see here is that, as I said in the beginning of the service, we want to be, as the body of Christ, uh, 1 Corinthians um, 12, 13, 14, it talks about love. It talks about cohesiveness. It talks about Jesus is the head, and we, as believers collectively, are the body, okay? And we work together, and the head, you know, we follow Jesus. He pretty much gives us our direction. But sometimes we find that um, Christians are not really tight. And we talked about that in the beginning. Uh, and we see here that these people were tight. When they knew they weren't going to see Paul anymore, it really grieved them, that tightness. So I just want to do a little demonstration in, in um, you know, cohesiveness <laughs> using a worldly example. Now, don't be afraid. This is body armor. This is what the police wear when they go out on duty. This is actually what I wear. Next to Jesus, this is my best friend. And it's actually, this is mine. It's personal to me. This is, it's actually flexible body armor. It works by when the bullet strikes it, the energy, the kinetic energy is dispersed over the body of the, of the garment. Okay, it's kind of like concentric circles, but that's not important right now. This is an old vest. <laughs> I wouldn't wear this. <laughs> this is an old vest. It's been decommissioned. It's about 20 years old. But it still has some strength to it. 
Now, before I do the demonstration, I want to ask by a show of hands, does anybody want to hold this while I do the demonstration? Don't you trust me? <laughs> That's a joke. I'm not doing anything with it. just want to test you. Okay, so this is an old vest, and what you see here is fibers. Now, most of you probably thought, gee, everything I would think about body armor was it was like a shield, like a turtle shell, right? That bullets bounced off of it? Not so. These are the fibers. These are Kevlar fibers that come from the vest individually. Now, you look at them, they're actually kind of weak. Kind of reminds me of satin balls on the Christmas tree when your cats get to them and they all become a fuzzy mess. Doesn't it look like that? Look how easily they come apart. A bullet would pass right through this. Now, the difference is they, these have potential individually. They have what's called tensile strength, which means strength across their lo longitudinal axis. But that's not important right now either. <laughs> When you take these individual fibers and you bring them together, and they're really close, and they work together, they actually, it's a weave. They're woven together, and then they're laid on top of each other. And when that happens, what you find is, even after 20 years, if you take a 155-grain, 40-caliber, jacketed, hollow-point hydroshock bullet and shoot it at it, it catches the bullet. See? It's right in there. As a matter of fact, I could take it out, and you can take a look at it later. It's inert. It won't hurt you. The illustration is that I can liken this to us. As individuals, when we choose to be individuals, this is as good as we are. We can't do anything. But in the body of Christ, when we're wrapped together and we're tight and we're working with each other and say, hey, you're an evangelist, that's a great gift. And you say, hey, you're a teacher, that's a great gift. And you say, hey, you're a great administrator. And we work together, as the Bible says, as the body of Christ, we can do incredible things for the kingdom of heaven. It's a great illustration, isn't it? Now, another thing, another caveat to this whole thing is that um, I talked about when things get really good, and the Bible tells us that, we tend to, we tend to pretty much kind of goof around and, and maybe sin. And, you know, the Bible talked about the children of Israel where every man was looking at his, his neighbor's wife because they were idle. They weren't in the spiritual battle. About seven or eight years ago, there was a, a batch of Kevlar fibers that were bad. And there was a, you know, there was a few officers actually over the course of the country that got shot into shootouts and the bullets went through the fibers and injured the officers really bad because the fibers were no good. My vest was one of them. Thank God I got it replaced. But the point is that when we're idle and we're not working together and we're bad fibers, it can spread and ruin the whole vest. And Jesus talked about in that in 1 Corinthians 5. He said sin is like leaven. It starts in a, in a little place, and when you get it into the, the lump of dough, it will leaven that whole dough, and that whole dough will be leavened. Okay? It's the same thing with the vest. It's the same thing with the body of Christ. We need to be tight. We need to be together. But we also need not to tolerate, certainly we should look in our own lives first, um, sin and just idleness. So that I want to leave you with. Um, I want to leave you with that illustration, and I just want to pray and just ask you that you keep that in your mind when you leave here today and think about ways that maybe we uh, have been fractured or splintered, not as, as this particular church, but as the body of Christ, and just pray about, Lord, what is my gift? How do I work with other Christians to, to achieve great goals? How do I work with other Christians to do great things for the kingdom of heaven? Let's pray.